You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you something, people. Uh, I watched the Super Bowl last night, and to be honest, it, it pretty much uh, it stunk. It stunk. I was watching it, and it was boring, and if I wasn't at a friend's house, I probably would have gone to sleep. So, anyway, enough about that. We have a great show today. We have a gentleman. He's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Now, you, you really can't give a bigger intro than that in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But he's, uh, he was one of the founding members of uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival. His band, Creedence Clearwater Revisited, is about to go on tour. And my guest is Stu Cook. How you doing, Stu? I'm doing well this morning. So, you're going to go on tour. I know you have a date at the end of February. Then you go on tour in March. How does a band, you, you, you know, you guys have been together for a while, but how do you get prepared for an upcoming tour? Well, you know, just make sure that it's, that, uh, <laughs> it's you, you pack your stuff, right? And then you go to the airport. It's, uh, it's pretty automatic. This is our 25th year of Revisited, uh, Revisited Project, started in 1995. Uh, we've, uh, Played practically uh, every continent, yeah, but the, the preparation is the same. You know, we don't rehearse; we do sound checks uh, whenever we can. Play three, four songs, and uh, it just all comes back together. That's so cool. I mean, yeah, it's been for so long. I know a lot of bands do rehearse, but I guess when you when you're going out and you're a tight group, it probably makes it you know you don't need that certain um, extra step because you already have done it. We've done it quite a bit, and we're quite happy with uh, with the way things are, are set up right now. So we don't anticipate any changes this year. Uh, we're going to play the same show uh, that we played last year and the year before. Uh, actually, we're switching. Uh, uh, we're going to play two different shows. We're all going to alternate them, but uh, you know they're basically the hits, right? And, and Susie Q and Grapevine and uh, all the recognizable Credence catalog. Now, now, when did you first start playing music? At what age uh, were you a youngster, and what got you into wanting to play music? Well, both my parents were musicians. My dad was a trumpet player. My mom played uh, piano and organ, and uh, so the, I was playing trumpet in the grammar school band when uh, you know before I was ten. I don't know what fourth, fifth grade, sixth grade. Third, fourth, yeah, fourth, fifth, sixth grade. I was I was playing the, in the school orchestra, so I don't, you know, I don't know how old I was then, but I was pretty young. Then I moved from from there to a piano, then to guitar, and finally to bass. Now, when you picked up the guitar, was there any certain music you wanted to play, any style? Because you know, with trumpet and piano, you know, it's there's only a certain amount of music you can play. But with a guitar, you can, you can go, I mean, there's, you know, it's back then, you know, I mean, piano, you can play jazz and stuff like that, and you can play, you know, quicker stuff. But with guitar, it opens up a whole new, seems like a whole new genre. What was some of the music that you wanted to play when you picked up that guitar? Well, you know, I was actually a rock and roll piano player. Okay. So, you know, piano was pretty pretty prominent in, uh, in early rock and roll. Little Richard, Fats Domino were both piano players. Jerry Lee Lewis, piano. Guitars are not such a big deal. Uh, guitars did become really popular. I mean, bands had guitar players, right? Scotty Moore played for Elvis. Uh, uh, you know, James Burton played for Ricky Nelson. Uh, but, uh, you know, saxophones took solos. Not just, there was hardly any guitar. You know, guitar came later with the Beatles, uh, the British Invasion. So at first I was a rock and roll piano player and played all that that cool stuff that from the 50s that, you know, Little Richard, that's Domino, Jerry, a whole lot of shaking going on, you know, the Jerry Lee Lewis stuff. Uh, guitar, uh, you know, obviously Elvis, that was it, you know, blanked out from the hips down on Ed Sullivan. Uh, that everybody wanted to play guitar, I think. <laughs> so I, was, I was classically trained in, in piano, but, you know, rock and roll was, was where it was at. Now, now, what would your teachers say? I mean, because if you're classically trained, it's such a great talent. We, 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 if you saw some of your teachers, really like, could you, can you stop the rock and roll and play what we taught you? <laughs> I tried to let them, not to let them know <laughs> because of the blowback I expected. <laughs> so, you know, I kept it under, under the wraps. And, but but uh, 
Fogarty, uh, Clifford, and I were playing in the Blue Velvets. I was a piano player. We had John play guitar, Doug played drums, and I played piano. Now, what kind of music were you playing? Were you playing? Were you starting to write your own music as a band, or were you playing covers? All covers. And now Johnny and the Hurricane, Johnny and the Hurricanes, The Ventures. Uh, you know, there was a lot of uh, instrumental pop groups. Uh, they had a lot of uh, Booker T and the MGs. You know, they're all having chart success. Uh, Booker T, keyboards. Uh, of course, Cropper is a good guitar player too. There's like, that was a great band. That's probably our favorite band. The whole all, all of Credence loved Booker T and the MGs. We actually got to be good friends with them. Uh, you know, as in later in life. But uh, you know, it was it was the covers of, of the of the hits that were on the radio. There was a lot more instrumental music on the radio back then. wasn't 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 clearly owned by vocalists. Now, especially in, in, in early pop music, anyhow. Okay, so now you're 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 playing in this band. Now, when do you decide to switch to bass? Well, uh, I want to say sometime in the '60s, mid '60s. Uh, when when we when we originally got together, we we were recording, trying to make records from the very beginning, and I guess it was in about mid '60s. Uh, when when uh, Tom Fogarty actually became, we all joined together. Uh, we were we used to back him up. Later he became one of us, and so he was a guitar player as well. So then we had three guitar players, and uh, no bass player. So I don't recall if we drew straws or John just <laughs> looked at me and said, "How'd you like to play bass?" Now, did you pick it up easily? Because you're already a classically trained piano player. You can play trumpet. You can play guitar. Did the bass come pretty easy to you? Uh, you know, the, 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 from a musical theory uh, point of point of view, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, the I got most of my. Uh, in fact, I got at the time I got all of my theory from uh, from uh, my piano instruction. <clears throat> Excuse me. So uh, that part of it. Uh, was already in my head, but actually playing the instrument, it was totally foreign to me. Uh, I started playing with my fingers, you know, plucking it like a string bass. And the good news is I only had to play one note at a time. <laughs> so, so it reminded me of my days as a trumpet player. <laughs> so, you know, really, if you look at it this way, electric bass is just is, is just a... Uh, a stringed instrument version of a tuba. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no. It's, it's, so it's basically, you picked it up quick, and now when did you guys sit there and decide that you were going to really pursue this, this music? Uh, I graduated from university in 1967, and uh, it was at that point when we decided we, that we would everybody would quit everything else that they were doing and we would go at it full time, you know, make a real concerted effort to see if we couldn't, you know, make it uh, further than we had. We'd, we'd had some regional success uh, on the radio with some of our uh, uh, original compositions, but uh, stuff that Tom and John were writing, but, you know, never, it was just, like I said, regional. It, it helped us get work locally in, in uh, Northern California. But uh, we, we never, you know, it never trans translated into a uh, into a career that we were hoping for. So in in sixty sixty seven, we decided to that we would remove all the other distractions in our life and, and focus full time on music. And it was just about one year to the day that Susie Q was on the charts. Now, how did you guys find your sound? Because it was different than the Bay Area sound, and it was. It was a different sound. Who was the catalyst for that? I mean, did you all say, you know, this is what we really want to play? Well, you know, we kind of came at it uh, ultimately from, from two different directions. We, we all listened to the same music when we were growing up. We had the same record collection, basically. We liked the blues, both rural and urban. We, we liked some country music, you know, the more up-tempo stuff that, that, that rocked, you know, had good guitar solos and stuff in it and you know, good good songs uh, so when we were 
learning music to, to, to play, you know, in our cover band, even you know, we when we started playing together, we were uh, we were called the Gollywogs. Our manager changed our name to the Gollywogs, thinking that would that sounded British, so that we would fit in with the British invasion somehow. But anyway, we were we were playing three, four, five sets a night, uh, and we did have you know you can't write enough original material, and no one recognized it anyhow. So we we learned a lot of songs by other bands, but most of most of the music was particular to our own uh, musical taste. So not a lot of other people were, were understanding what, what we were trying to do. We would, we learned stuff like Walk on the Dog, Rufus Thomas, and, you know, we played a lot of, a lot of R&B stuff uh, that was uh, our favorite music. But, you know, when we were playing these uh, dates, you know, parties and dances and things like that, people would come up and want us to play something. Can you guys play any Jimi Hendrix? <laughs> no, we're not trying to be that kind of a cover band. <laughs> we want to cover. We want to cover like the the, the old ones, the real gems, uh, and we want to play uh, for, for new music. We want to play our own music. So uh, we we had this overall music vibe, and then when John started the when when Tom turned the singing and the writing over to John, uh, and then John uh, came up with the with the imagery, and, and then we just uh, we, we played you know like the the style was pretty much what we had already settled on. It was fine tuned uh, to each of the each of the compositions, uh, which you know had that swampy southern. Uh, you know, kind of mystical, almost mystical uh, imagery to it, and uh, so it, it kind of came together from from just our own roots and and uh, and, the, and the immediate direction that that uh, that John gave when he when he uh, took the helm. Now, whose idea was it to change the name from the Gollywogs to what you're wearing? Every one of us okay. <laughs> wanted to change the name. <laughs> I mean, we could not get rid of that name fast enough. We we had band uniforms, like uh, weird, brightly colored checkered pants. We had paisley, paisley shirts with ties, like bow ties, I think. And we wore these white fuzzy hats. <laughs> it was a scene. And I, I mean, when we got to throw that crap away, I think the only thing we got kept was the vests. The vests were kind of cool. But... Uh, yeah, it was just you know we felt like uh, puppets. You know, you know, you, it was it was an interesting situation because when you we had a manager and we thought he knew what was going on, but uh, and so you know we're paying him. We so we thought well we may as well follow his advice. Maybe he's right and we're wrong. But then after a couple of years, it became apparent to us that, that uh, in fact it was the opposite. He was wrong and we were right. And so when we got rid of him, we got rid of the costumes, changed the name. Now, how did you come up with the name? Well, the Credence actually uh, was, a, was a friend. There was a guy named Credence, Credence Newball. He was a friend of Tom's, uh, I think a co-worker. Tom worked for uh, a, a public utility in California. And this guy was a South African guy. And uh, so we grabbed his name. Credence is sort of comes from creed, you know, to, uh, to believe, a belief. Uh, and we, you know, jiggered, we added an E so that it was C-R-E-E-D-E and C-E. So there's four E's in Credence rather than uh, the, the normal three. And uh, Clearwater was a early ecological reference uh, that actually came from a beer commercial. Cool, clear water. I think it was either Hams, Hams or Olympia beer, West Coast labels. Uh, and the revival was 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 meant to to, to uh, refer to our uh, our own personal revival. You know, to make this commitment. We've been doing it for nine, some nine years, and then and had only you know limited success. Probably made. 
seven or eight records, so, you know, 12, 14, let's say, it's somewhere between 10 and 14 tracks were cut, A and B sides, and uh, like I said, we, we'd had enough success where we could, you know, get booked at teen clubs and on military bases and stuff like that in, in the area, but uh, we, were, we were really intent to see if we couldn't, you know, make, make a breakthrough, so... Uh, that was that was the the year from uh, from sixty seven to sixty eight, from uh, spring to spring. And that's when Susie Q came out in sixty eight. That's right. Now, what made uh, what made June. that what made that become a hit? What did you guys do different? What was that path to make that just get known and put you guys at a new level? It's all about radio. Radio decided. Bill Drake was uh, the, the major uh, programmer. That was when radio programming was, was you know, consulting was uh, starting to become a big deal. And uh, so the, all the major markets were going for that. And so the, the, the process was to, you know, look at how songs performed locally, regionally. And then, uh, you know, they would start in the small markets and spread to larger markets. And then uh, that was all pretty much under the control of these, uh, these consulting firms who had, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 stations, whatever, depending upon their reach. Uh, and so they did programming. So, like, when a, when a song looked like it was doing well, then it would get, you know, they would start getting it, uh, they would recommend it to the regional markets. This song looks like it's going to perform well, it's getting a lot of feedback, it's, you know, da 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 And so eventually, you know, KYA or uh, KFRC, you know, the big, the big city stations in San Francisco, finally they would play it. And then another big city would pick it up. You know, it's just sort of a, a process where it, it, it sort of spreads, it grows like a fungus <laughs> until, you know, you get a shot on a real radio station with a huge market, and then you see what happens, you know. Do, do they like you or, you know, uh, are, are they interested or, you know, they're not interested. And, you know, if they're interested, then you start getting into heavy rotation, right? And I would say radio was our record company was a joke. We had no manager. Uh, we did have a record deal, so we were able to actually pursue our goals. But the company wouldn't, you know, they weren't big enough to to play, you know, to buy ads and you know play play ball like the rest of the big labels did. So I would say that that our success was. And we had a we had a, a pretty strong cover song. You know, we've been playing Susie Q for for years. We stopped playing it when the Stones recorded it because we were already playing a bunch of other Stones covers. Uh, and then uh, we were, sometime in in '67, uh, we were just about down to our last dollar. We were playing in a, a club near a military base up near Sacramento, California. We were, you know, just. What do we do for five sets? You know, we don't have five sets worth of material. So <laughs> set four became set one again, right? Because the, the same people probably weren't in the bar anyhow. So so we just started over. Then we still needed some songs for set five. And so I recall suggesting to, to the guys that we just take Suzy Q and turn it into like a, a, a San Francisco psychedelic style jam. <laughs> And so, yeah, let's play this song for 10 or 15 minutes. I'll, you know, then we'll only have to play two or three songs, and we'll be out of, out of the barn in the van going home. Uh, so uh, that was sort of, you know, so we broke through with a, with a strong cover song. Uh, Dale Hawkins had the first hit back in the 50s. Ricky Nelson's uh, guitar player, James Burton, played on that song, the original track. Uh, and that our version... Uh, was was the track that uh, FM radio? Now, that was the birth of FM radio, right about the, about that time as well. And the first uh, FM radio station that that I was aware of uh, was uh, KMPX in San Francisco. And uh, we they went the, they got into a beef with the, the station owners and over you know programming and so on. And uh, probably they were smoking too much weed in the station. I don't know. Anyway, they went on strike, and, and we supported the strike. So when they ended up at KSAN, which became the, the big FM, uh, you know, progressive rock FM station, uh, subsequently, uh, uh, they were all over our uh, our first album. We brought them in a, a mix of, of the first album, 
before it even came out, and they were playing it uh, during their during their strike, and then subsequently, you know, they gave us a huge boost. And uh, AM radio picked up uh, Susie Q. Uh, that was Bill Drake's big contribution to our career, and then then it spread. So I would I would say, you know, radio and then our fans have. Uh, got us to where we are today. You know, there's more Creedence fans now than ever. Well, ever. Now, now, do you remember the first time you heard Suzy Q on the radio? Oh, yeah. Oh, tell me about that, because I always love to hear the stories. People always have, <laughs> it seems like everyone's always driving in their car, and they go, holy yeah, crap. Oh, yeah, I think- that's it. It happens when you're in the car, and you just start pounding on the dashboard, <laughs> screaming. It was like, wow, I, you know, I'm, am I listening to the right station? Is this really the, the, you know, the big rock station in San Francisco? Uh, yeah, it was it was great. Uh, you know, even if you know it wasn't it wasn't an original song. Uh, it it was a it was our it was us playing though, right? So that that made all the difference. I mean, it was a and it was still in subsequent hits too. When you hear yourself on the radio, you know, you just can't get over it. <laughs> now I'm over it. Okay, right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's sixty. You know, fifty. That's. Now, okay, so now this, the song's a hit. You guys are becoming bigger. What's your touring like? Are now you trying to get on tour across the country, or how are you getting out of the regional? You have the songs on the radio, but you said you didn't really have management. So how did you guys try to get a tour started? Well, John was managing the band as best he could. You know, I, I give him some credit, but uh, but he wasn't he wasn't cut out for the job. He didn't have the skills or the experience uh, to manage a band, uh, you know, that was played in the league that, that we were entering, and then hope to, uh, you know, to grow, to reach out in. Uh, that was, you know, getting on the radio was just the first step of, of the of the goal. Our, actually, our original goal was one of these nights we're going to be making a hundred bucks each. <laughs> That was our goal. <laughs> we wanted to make records, and we wanted to be on the radio. We knew that's what we wanted to do. But uh, you know, we've been at it nine and a half years before Suzy Q came out. Uh, so it wasn't a, we weren't an overnight success. But uh, it was great. It was great to, to hear hear ourselves, and uh, you know, how what were we going to do to follow it up? Well, original song uh, uh, off the. Uh, Actually, I put a spell on you. It was our second release off the first album, and it made it into the into the top fifty nationally, mainly based on East and West Coast strength. But it was it was too bluesy, I think, to uh, to, to to come to come across. Suzuki was a much more brighter, uh, accessible uh, arrangement. Uh, put a spell on you was a you know a more down tempo, more. You know, back if you recall, back I don't know how old you are, but but you know, radio was pretty divided on racial lines uh, in the in the sixties, forties, fifties, sixties, even in, in, into the seventies. I mean, you know, how long it took Michael Jackson to get on MTV in the right. in the eighties, right? right? You know, it's it's, uh, it's it, you know, while while I'd say that 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 show showbiz in general has has the least. Uh, barriers, uh, you know, to uh, to, uh, to habits, behaviors, lifestyles. Uh, you know, there's the least amount of criticism uh, of other people's choices in in, uh, in the entertainment uh, business, broadly speaking. Uh, there was black stations, and there was the rest, uh, and playing black music. Uh, as you know, white person playing black music, uh, or even black flavored music, uh, wasn't uh, you know wasn't generally encouraged. At least <laughs> when we were kids, that was, that's the impression we got. So we we kept it. Uh, you know, when we were younger, we we kept it. You know, on the more on the uh, the recognizable side of the street, at least for our peers. Uh, when we were when we decided to go full time, we really dove into our own deeper into our own musical tastes and, and came up with stuff that was more how we really felt. You know, caring we didn't care what uh, thing we knew things were changing. You know, that was the civil rights 
uh, era, and things were changing. At least there was motion, and so it wasn't as dangerous to, uh, to you know, to to come out and play or enjoy uh, race music, as it was called, you know, rhythm and blues, R&B, uh, which predated soul. Uh, you know, R&B came out of uh, came out of gospel. And uh, anyway, it's a true American art uh, art form. Jazz, American, you know, the blues, America's greatest contributions to to world music today, still today. Uh, but the uh, you know the first album was was mainly dark, and so uh, the second album, uh, Bayou Country. The first single was uh, Born on the Bayou, Back with Proud Mary. Well, radio thought Proud Mary was the, the hit. We were going with Born on the Bayou because that's really how we, <clears throat> how we felt as a band. I mean, that, that song really captures the spirit of, of Creedence Clearwater Revival. Okay. But Proud Mary was the one that radio picked. And so there you have it, you know, number two nationally. That really you know, got us to another level and, and, you know, they got the, we weren't just a one hit band then. And the second hit was an original composition. Now, when you, when you get those, when you start getting, you know, that's, that goes to number two, do you feel things are changing? Do you, can you tell that all of a sudden you're becoming more popular? What, how does that feel internally? Do you just, or do you just still just the same guys playing the music and doing what you want to do? Well, back to your original question on this line, that's when the phone started ringing, right? And, and that's when tour dates or, you know, offers. wouldn't call them tours at, at this point because the touring is, is the concept of starting and then touring and then coming home, finishing, right? And then we, we played weekends. But, but the offers were coming in and the price, our price was going up. Uh, you know, based on uh, more and more success, and uh, so, but we were still playing just weekends. We played mainly just weekends, uh, almost our entire career until finally, uh, you know, the, the band was. This is, you know, I'm jumping way ahead, but at the end of the band, we finally got the touring right. Anyhow, where we actually went on tour, and. Uh, played a string of dates instead of flying out, flying home, flying out, flying home with all of our equipment, by the way. Right. <laughs> you know? So that wasn't, that wasn't a good business model, but that's the way we started at it. Anyhow. So you got your, so you're getting the offers, you're becoming bigger. Now, eventually you got to play Woodstock. When you played Woodstock, did you know that all these people show up? What, how did they pitch you Woodstock? Uh, this is, you know, uh, three days of uh, peace and love. Sound like a good idea to us. You know, that was the summer of festivals. We, we played several festivals. Atlanta Pop Festival, I think yeah, there was one in L.A. I uh, don't know if it was called L.A. Pop Festival. It was, uh, uh, Newport, Newport, Newport Beach, maybe. No. Anyway, there was, there was a Denver Pop Festival. There was festivals all over the place. Woodstock Tuss was just one of them. Uh, in the summer of 69 and uh, at the time we were we were one of the first bands to sign first or second acts to sign and then of course we had I think Green River the album Green River might have been released and heading up the charts at, the, at that point uh, eventually making it to number one but we were head, signed to headline Saturday night okay Hello? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. So you were assigned a headline that night. So then how did the concert go? Well, that's, uh, you know, day one, the fences came down because instead of a quarter million people, some 450,000 people or so, near a half million, that number sounds good, right? Near a half million, a little hyperbole, right. 
people are getting used to it now, uh, showed up and of course the, the fences went down and uh, it became a free concert. And then uh, everybody, you know, then it became like a question of will this thing hold together? Uh, do they have water? Do they have toilets? Is there enough food? Uh, where are these people coming from? <laughs> How are they getting here? Uh, and then it rained. And that was Saturday. And that created uh, all kinds of, uh, you know, safety hazards in and around the stage area, electrical, uh, you know, uh, unstable soil. Uh, there was, there was, so this, everything started to run late and, you know, they had to put up, they had to stop things and they had to start them again. They stopped things, start them again. And anyway, we, we ended up playing early Sunday morning after a long Grateful Dead, uh, kind of a sleepy time presentation. And uh, so we got on about one, something like that, in the morning, played a, our usual show, which I thought was a journeyman show. You know, we, we had a little, some technical problems at the beginning, but uh, I, I thought that, that the band played well uh, under the circumstances. And, uh, you know, we were, we were uh, making history. No one knew it. Actually, you know, I've always, I always tell people that Woodstock was not about the bands. Woodstock was about the audience and how they kept it together for three days. The bands were just sort of the, the Muzak soundtrack to, to this amazing event that, uh, you know, couldn't be duplicated. They've tried. Each time they try, it gets worse. Right. So I don't know, I don't know how this year's are going to go. But. <laughs> now, when you're at Woodstock, you know, there's all these people showing up. Where were you guys staying? And how'd you get in and out of there if all these people showed up? We, we've... Uh, we flew to Boston, to, uh, took a private jet from Boston up to Bethel, I think, and then we helicoptered uh, from the airport uh, to the Holiday Inn, okay. where all the artists were staying. Now, and then we then we helicoptered from the from the Holiday Inn to the to the festival site. And you got in okay. I mean, were, were you swamped by people when you're trying to get there? Once you got onto the grounds? No, no. I mean, everybody at the hotel, pretty, you know, that was like artists. They weren't swamping and swarming anybody. They were performers. Uh, you know, there was, I don't recall being, a, you know, swamped or anything. And then, you know, the helicopter landed backstage where, once again, we were surrounded by artists and Bill Graham was taking care of us back there. We had fine wine, steaks, good weed. You know, it was, it was very comfortable for the artists. It was hell for the audience. Now, down the road, I want to talk. I want to talk about revisited coming up. But down the road, when you guys broke up, what led to the breakup? Because you know, it's funny is even though your the career time you were together in the public eye wasn't that long. As you said before, Susie Q, you were together for nine and a half years, so it wasn't like you were a new band. I'm sorry, we, we were a, a new band. No, you you were you were a band that was together before you got the. You know, before you became popular, you had a long career going before you became you correct. Were, yeah. So when you broke up, it probably seemed like people thought you were together shorter because they didn't know about all the time before that. Quite possibly, yeah. Unless you were, you know, into the deep archives, you probably. I mean, did, no, I mean, a lot of people didn't become aware of us until later hits. Uh, depending upon, you know, what country they were in or, you know, I mean, a lot of people didn't hear Susie Q or, or didn't, didn't connect that, that that was us or they heard Proud Mary and then what was the next one? Bad Moon Rising, I guess, you know, so, so finally, you know, it, it didn't happen all at once. In other words, it grows, it spreads, it gets deeper, your audience gets deeper and wider uh, as you have more and more recognizable, rememberable uh, radio uh, play so uh, yeah I mean some places around the world they only know hey tonight Credence hey tonight or, or right. cotton fields you <laughs> know <laughs> Thailand in Thailand cotton fields right, right? <laughs> <laughs> so so you guys you guys are how did when the breakup happened did you see it coming oh yeah and what led to it 
Well, there's a variety of things. You know, I could try and I'll, I'll simplify it as much as I can. I don't want to make it, you know, turn it into baby food. But you know, there's all kinds of dynamics going on in the band. You know, there's a, there was a sibling rivalry. Uh, between John and Tom, you know, Tom was the original singer. He was the original guy who wanted to make records. He brought us into the studio to make records with him and to play gigs that he got. He trained us to be his backup band, right? And so he was the band leader and the manager and all that stuff for years. And then when he gave it over to John, which was a, a, a good decision, obviously, uh, we all felt that it was the best decision at, at, at the time. And, you know, Tom was pretty magnanimous about, about the whole thing, you know, very gentlemanly and, and brotherly thing to do, you would think. But, you know, after a long period of, of uh, you know, after four or five albums of success, Tom said, hey, you know, what about I get to sing one of these, co-? you know, we did a, a, at least one cover on every album and, and we did a lot of them on, on the Cosmos Factory. Uh, uh, Tom asked if he could, you know, sing one of them, sing a cover. You know, he used to, you know, he sang covers as well as his own compositions. John said no. You know, how about I? You know, what if I? What, what if I submit a song? Can I submit a song? You know, he said no. I'm not singing your songs. Anyway, that you know that didn't go down well. Uh, <laughs> so for the next year, we're, Doug and I probably talked Tom out of quitting three or four times, you know, come on, it'll be, it'll get better. John will change his mind. He'll, he'll eventually, you know, he's just, you know, surprised by it or, you know, whatever platitudes we could use at the time, you know, to, to try and convince Tom that, you know, we got a good thing going here. Let's not, you know, let's not go solo too soon here. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It doesn't make a lot of sense to, you know, but eventually, you know, Tom's, Tom's inner compass said, I have to, you know, I have to, I have to, I've done this, you know, enough where now I have to, I want to go do something else. I don't have to quit. I just want to do my own thing anyway for a while. I want to make a record. I want my own songs recorded. I want to sing them. And there's no room in this project for that. You know, every band has the same sort of thing. You know, there's the, usually have one major songwriter and, you know, one singer. And sometimes there's, there's more like, say, for instance, in the Beatles, right? right. It was, there was ultimately four singer-songwriters, uh, although I don't believe any Ringo compositions were recorded by the Beatles. He definitely sang on uh, on uh, at least Yellow Submarine, uh, and he actually Ringo is the most successful solo artist Beatle. Okay, he's had the he's had the most successful career as a solo artist of any of the four Beatles. Harrison. Uh, we had to fight to get tracks on on any of those albums, you know. And then finally, uh, I think it was Abbey Road, maybe. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, here comes the sun, and uh, uh, another one. Uh, now both huge Beatle hits, you know. He had two in a row. Uh, but any band. Where there's where there's multiple people, uh, you know, with, that want to have input, you're going to have, you know, dynamic that that is going to, you know, either either help the band get be bigger and stronger and, and more successful, or it's going to eventually unwind it. And I think, uh, sadly, you know, and especially because we had no manager that could mentor us or, and tell us to all sit down, shut up, and listen, uh, we were blowing it. We didn't have anybody like that. Uh, and so eventually, you know, uh, I didn't like the way the band, I, you know, I, had a de- I have a degree in, in, uh, in business from university, and I didn't like the way the business of the band was being handled with this constant weekend touring and, and you know, all the airlines were, were making all the money, basically. And uh, so I got, you know, I pushed for... Uh, you know, a different a different style of touring, more you know, the, what we call touring today. You know, when you start and you leave town and you go play a string of cities that are routed, and then you finish, or you, the first leg of the tour is finished. You go home for a week or two, then you do leg two, and so on. I wanted to tour like that, and uh, so 
this was all, you know, finally John had to give in and say, okay, I won't make all the decisions anymore. But what that ended up being is, to me, is that, okay, I, I won't lead the band from the front, but, you know, you, you nothing is going to happen. I will lead the band from the back. In other words, nothing will happen unless I agree to, to do it anyhow, right? Right. So what, this whole idea of a democracy was nonsense. And that's never what we wanted anyhow. We wanted input that all people would discuss and and we would make the best decision based on everybody's opinion, what was best for us and, and what was actually best, you know, to, to proceed forward with. You know, we'd have the internal conversation, then we would take it external with a, with a, with a, hopefully with the best decision. But John wouldn't even allow that. Uh, he, he wouldn't seriously entertain that. He, he gave it lip service. But, but he wasn't giving up control of anything. And so the, the final album just be, was an exercise in I'll show you. Okay. So Mardi Gras was John saying, you're going to record this many, you're going to sing this many, you know what I'm saying? It's like, we, I never wanted to sing, write, sing three <laughs> songs on a Credence album. We already had a singer. We already had a writer that everybody in the world, you know, recognized. <laughs> but where you get this, you know, well, if we're going to, if it's going to be a democracy, then you're going to have to do 25% of it, or as it ended up being 33%, right? Because Tom had left by then. Tom said, I'm not playing around with this. This sounds crazy to me. I am really out of here this time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Doug and I, not wanting to lose our band, thought we'd, we'd try it. You know, we'd, okay, we'll, this ain't a democracy, you know, John's telling us what to do, or he'll quit. I say, well, this is a strange dilemma. You know, we're a democracy, but two of the three of us, you know, this one guy says he'll quit if, if he doesn't get his way. Well, that, that's, this is not very democratic to me. <laughs> but anyway, we didn't want to lose our band, you know, at that point, that's all we knew. It's all we, I mean, that's all we'd worked on for years, you know, is to, to to try and be successful, to make it. And we finally did, and and uh, then it came unwound, you know? That's what uh, Have You Ever Seen the Rain is about. So so it comes unwound, and then you guys end up breaking up. Now, down the road, you start revisited. How did that come up? Because I'm gonna skip, you know, that, but it's just, and it's been kicking ass since 95, but how did you guys start up revisited? Well, you know, I'd been I'd been playing in a country band uh, called Southern Pacific and been producing other artists uh, since Creedence broke up. And Doug had been doing the same. He played with Doug Som and produced some Doug Som albums. And in fact, Doug and I actually played on on uh, on one of Som's best albums, an album called Groover's Paradise that Cosmo uh, had produced for Warner Brothers Records. And he'd been playing in Doug's band and and. Uh, I've been living in LA and then shortly after this, we had the massive Northridge earthquake and then we had the Malibu fires, uh, which came fairly close to my house. Uh, and then the OJ trial was going on. I was like, you know, I'm, I really need to get out of LA. I'm, <laughs> I'm just about done with LA. <laughs> you know, uh, we had the Watts riots, you know, after the, after the, uh, the Rodney King thing, you know, I mean, all this stuff was LA just was, I never wanted to live there anyhow, but I moved there when I was in Southern Pacific because most of the other guys in Southern Pacific were in L.A. Uh, and it was just easier to rehearse and, and write and record and so on if we were all in the same place. So I moved my family to, to Woodland Hills, California. And anyway, it's time to get out of there. So Doug and his family were living up in Lake Tahoe, and he invited us up uh, for a week to check it out and I've been looking up in the California wine country uh, you know, I grew up in Northern California so I was fairly familiar with Napa Sonoma area and uh, used to go motorcycle riding up there all the time uh, during the, uh, the original band so anyway I was looking up there so Doug invites us up to, uh, to Lake Tahoe and I left town with an escrow on a, on a huge log cabin that I, uh, that I fell in love with. And so I moved up there, lived there for, uh, for 13 years. And so Doug and I are hanging out together and, uh, we're up in his studio and, you know, 
there's an amp and a set of drums, and so we're you know we're jamming together pretty regularly. You know, jamming, drinking beer, smoking weed, hanging out, uh, but you know, not getting in any trouble. Uh, and after after a bit of this, we say, you know, we need other guys. We need a keyboard player. We need a singer. We need a guitar player. You know, we're a rhythm section. We're a good rhythm section, solid. Uh, you know, we kind of have a, a extra sense, you know, a sixth sense, if you will, about uh, what each other is going to do. You know, so you know, we play well together. We we read each other well, and then we listen to each other carefully. So you know, we're we're locked up. We're we're we're, we're, we're we got a thing going. So let's. Let's try and do something, and, and what better to do than what we've already done, you know? I mean, what better music to play than Credence music? And who better to play it? So we we found some guys, you know, I, I knew a lot of people in the in the business, and I found uh, Elliot Easton, uh, who was a, a big Credence fan, and then uh, Steve Gunner is our keyboard uh, utility player, and then a guy that I uh, used to, that I met when I was in the country rock band, Southern Pacific, who had a couple of Doobie Brothers in it, by the way. Uh, I met this this guy. Uh, I got a string endorsement deal with uh, Dean Markley, and the and the guy who uh, who was like the the string guru at Dean Markley uh, became a good friend of mine, uh, and still is, as a matter of fact. And he recommended John Tristeo. Uh, you know, we we're holding auditions monthly auditions to try and find uh, a good singer for uh, the material. And it's not easy material to sing and make it recognizable and believable. And so we, we, we had one guy who sounded so much like Don Henley. It was, it was scary, but he wasn't right for, for this material. We had, we had some, some other guys, you know, who were, who were good, but, but you know, they, we thought maybe personality wise that they weren't a good fit. And so anyway, this, this friend of mine, Mike Conley, recommends Tristeo. He says, "This is your guy. I know he's your guy." And you know, well, we 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 never heard that before, right? <laughs> Everybody told us that <laughs> this is your guy. Well, you know, turns out Mike was right. John Tristeo was our guy, and uh, and it was it wasn't it wasn't the up tempo stuff that 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 clicked when he sang. Looking out my back door, it was like, wow, you know, this guy really gets it. He. Now, if he can, you know, if he can, you know, sing the the, the higher stuff, the tougher stuff, you know, I, I think I think we found our guy. He because he he just un, he understood how it, you know, I guess he'd listen to a lot of the same music that we'd listen to. You know, that's that's about the best way for me to to describe it. And then, you know, we rehearsed for two or three weeks down in L.A. and and uh, then we waited like a half a year before we got a gig. <laughs> but uh, uh, you know that was the beginning. Uh, the, the band gelled with with Elliot on guitar, you know Elliot from the Cars on guitar, and John singing, Gunner on acoustic and percussion and keyboards, and and Doug and Stu and holding down the rhythm section. Johnny's a great rhythm guitar player as well. He's a great, he's a good musician, a real good drummer, a real good. Band. Uh, we still on? Yeah. Okay, I heard a loud beep. Uh, but um, oh, I guess my wife is trying to call me. I guess I'll just have to let her keep calling. Uh, in any event, uh, that was that was the band, and it gelled, and that was the band for the, that was revisited project for for the first ten years, and then uh, you know. I'll let you take your next question. Was there was there a problem using the name and using the material? Uh, no problem using the material. You know, the, the, the copyright laws are that once a, once a, a, a song is published, that means performed in public. That's what the, where the word published comes from. It's made available to the public. Then anybody can do it. But if you may, if you do it for money, then the the owner and the writer have to be compensated. So if the, if that music had never been released, then we couldn't have we couldn't have used it. But since it was published, anybody could do it, and and they could re-record it as well, uh, which we have done as well. But uh, but the, the way that works is music venues collect the money, or the music venues pay the money to the the music licensing uh, entities, ASCAP and BMI. 
radio stations collect money and pay, for, and pay them also for the use of the music. But only the writer and the publisher, the artists don't get paid on radio plays. They are now uh, under the new uh, Music Modernization Act, but uh, that, that really goes more towards singer and songwriters. Uh, I mean, songwriter and publisher as well. It's, it's a complicated business uh, that most people get screwed on because they don't know anything about it when they first get into the business. Right. Uh, <laughs> and they like it that way. You know, that's, that's the way they keep it. So, uh, uh, where was I going with that? We were talking about if, if you had a problem using the name and oh, using yeah, the we got, Yeah, as a matter of fact, we got sued over the name. We called it Credence Clearwater Revisited because we're members of Credence Clearwater and we're revisiting and honoring and celebrating uh, the music of the original quartet. And John thought that we couldn't use the name and we thought we owned it. And uh, we thought we all owned it. And three quarters of the owners decided that we were, should be able to do this. Anyway, long story short, expensive legal battle. Finally, you know, we settle the, the case and we get to be Creedence Clearwater revisited again. The, the court said that, yes, we can use that name. So, uh, you know, that got out of the way. And then that was back in that started. That fight started in '97, ended in 2001, <laughs> and, and you know, we changed our name in the in the interim to uh, Oh, Stu Cook and Doug Cosmo Clifford present Cosmos Factory, the music of Creedence Clearwater Revival. I mean. Would that fit on a marquee? Yeah. I don't think so. <laughs> exactly. So, so now, earlier in the interview, you said you have more fans now than ever. What do you? What is your fan base now? Do you have? I'm sure you have younger people because you know I always talk to musicians about this because when you've been around for a long time, you know you got your original fan and parents turn, you know, to hand down music to their kids, hand on to kids. Like, what is your, when you go to perform on this tour coming up, what will your fan base be? Is it just a huge variants of age yeah there's three full generations now i mean that's like 60 years of of uh of listeners uh practically uh we know that there's our generation and i and i've got grandkids you know so there's so do our fans you know our original fans the ones that are that are still here with us have grandkids as well and they're all credence fans now, when you play the live show, do you, is it still, you've been around, you know, as you said, with this uh, group for a while, do you still feel the energy from when you were young? Does it still, does it still, you know, feel like when you were first starting out? Well, no, yes and no. Uh, it, it feels, I mean, there's, there's an excitement to, to, to getting on stage and, and starting out. Uh, hold, hold, hold on one second. I have, to, I have a quick word. <laughs> okay, I'm back. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, there's a there's a, a lot more maturity to, to what we're doing now. At least, you know, speaking personally, uh, there's a I'm just a a, a more rounded human, more. You know, I'm more intelligent, I'm more aware, I'm more tuned in, I'm a better bass player, uh, I'm a better singer, uh, but, but, the, but, the, but the, the, the rawness, uh, you know, is still there, probably because we don't overdo this, you know, we don't rehearse ourselves to death, you know, we, we, so there's an excitement when we come together and uh, that, 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 that keeps it fresh for us, you know. Now, what is your your go to for for encores? Now, I know for a while you guys did. John say you couldn't do encores. Oh, yeah, that was another one of the things that you asked about. You know what? What were some of the things that uh, led to the unraveling of uh, of the original band? And and you know that was just that was an arbitrary decision by John that we're not playing encores anymore. We were somewhere in Kansas or Nebraska. Can't remember exactly where where you know, we played a pretty exciting show and we're backstage and I think Doug said, Hey, what's what are we gonna play for an encore? You know, by then we were had like three albums out or something like that and 
two albums for sure. Three, we had three albums out. So we had a lot of songs uh, that we could play uh, that were recognizable songs, good encore songs. And John said, we're not playing an encore. Encores are phony. Wait, wait a minute. <laughs> People that play an encore, you know, they may be, you know, whatever you think of them. When the audience wants one, that's the time you go back out and play more, right? Right. So, it's the lighter no, moment. Are fo- they're not phony to the people cheering and, and demanding more. <laughs> you know. Anyway, Creedus never played another encore. I think Doug and John almost got into a a real fight that night. Uh, you know, not just one of words. You know, that was just sort of that was the kind of stuff. You know, why are we in the Woodstock movie? Because you guys played bad. What do you mean we played bad? You played bad. <laughs> you know, we play, we played good. You played bad. <laughs> so you know, I've listened to that stuff. There's there's we played great on on half of our set and and good and okay on the, on the other half of the set. And technical problems aside, you know, I mean, there was you know we all, they were only looking for one song in the movie, right? They weren't going to put the whole thing in there. And but I and I listened to it. There's at least a half a dozen. Five for sure knockout tracks uh, performances, and he, he still he just gave us his no. We don't need it. We're already number one. Well, Green River was number one, but you know you're only as good as your last hit, right? Right. <laughs> so uh, it was a huge mistake not to not to be in that because now people don't associate us with that event. Right. Which you know, which yeah. you were you were. A headliner. Yeah, we were one of the headliners, and we were one of the first acts to sign, and and we should have been in that film. Uh, but, you know, that was one of John's mistakes, and I don't know who he's, he can't blame it on us anymore. Right. Uh, because it's, because, it, because, I'll tell you why, because it's coming out this year. Uh, the whole, I believe, uh, our record company is negotiating with uh, uh, Warner Brothers to, uh, to have, release the entire Credence set. Well, it's good. That's good. And the more people can see that, and then they'll associate you more with being in Woodstock. Yeah, well, we're on the, we're on the, uh, the, the uh, you know, there's a box set of 40th anniversary and, and the 45th anniversary. We're all in, in the, you know, we're, we're on the bonus discs. Uh, there's 15 minutes of us, audio and video. I mean, there was 15 minutes that, that were apparently good enough to, to make it. I mean, I knew this all along. Credence was on the on the uh, the audio album. We just weren't in the film. So now within the band, I was going to ask you earlier about encores. Do you do encores now because you couldn't do them? Then? Sure. Now, now what? Sure. Now, what are your go-to encore songs? Because you know what people you see as a concert goer, you always get you always figure out you know when a group doesn't play a certain song that you love and it's popular, <laughs> they're going to play it for an encore, and then they don't, and you're like. Oh shit! So, like, what are some of your go-to? Do you have go-to encore songs? Sure. And what are what are some of them? Well, uh, gee, I hate to give this away. You know, how many how many how many uh, listeners do you have? We have a lot. We'll play. We, don't, we won't we won't give it away. They'll have to come and see it. But the thing is, though, you're not playing okay. in all those towns. You you only have a small tour starting right now, so a lot of people aren't going to get to see you live, and they won't get to get the get to know. That's this. true. All right. Well, uh, have you ever seen the rain? Is in the encores. Uh, cotton fields sometimes. Traveling band sometimes. Uh, run through the jungle sometimes. Uh, up around the bend is is definitely in the encore. Uh, now, how's that? Is that's that, good. That's... Now, I got to ask you when you when you do the encore. How long do you wait? Because it's always funny as a concert goer. You know, every, a band will do one encore and then the lights completely go up and some people are still hanging out and you're like, no, no, the complete lights are up now. How long do you wait till you go out for the encore? Well, you know, we don't have a stopwatch on it. Usually we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, towel off, grab a beer, uh, you know, have a few words with each other. I'd say, you know, no more than a minute or two, you know, probably less than a minute, you know, it's just, all right, you know, why lose the audience? Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've you've busted your your butt to uh, to, to get the people, uh, you know, 
out of their minds, you know, get them out of their chairs and, and out of their heads. And uh, why would you why would you let that go away? Exactly. <laughs> now you have you have you have eight you have eight uh, dates. You know, that, that, that's that's the fun. You know, if there is a phony part to encores, that that part right there would would might qualify as a, you know like trying to milk it. You know, okay. to try and okay, you're not cheering loud enough. Yeah. That, that kind of a thing. <laughs> We all we all know that that you know and we know that we're coming back, right? right. But you but you haven't you have to perform. You know we we don't believe in doing that. I, that it's like come on, let's go get them. We're ready to play. Let's go let's go get it. That's true. We 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 know you're coming out, and it's that's funny you say that. But now you have you have eight dates scheduled. Are you planning more for 2019? Yeah, oh sure. We're gonna play 45, 40, 40 to fifty shows this year. Okay. Now, that's been our our average uh, for, for a year now. That gives us enough enough uh, you know enough fun uh, and not too much travel. Okay. Well, you know what? I'm I'm so glad you took the time to talk to me today. I'm a fan, and I'm going to try to make it to your show in uh in you're in Ben Salem, which is uh the Parks Casino. Oh yeah. Is, it's about 15 mm-hmm. miles from me, so I'm going to try oh, to great. make it out and. Uh, Hopefully I can meet you, and um, I want to sure. thank you. And then people now go just check check out their website. It's credence-revisited.com. It has all their tour dates. Go listen to the old Credence Clearwater revival music because they're a part of history. You've seen, you've heard their music in movies like American Werewolf in London. You know everyone knows their songs, and, and there's just there's so many different songs that you will love. And you know, and you sit there and hear them on the radio. So people, check out uh, Stu's work. And Stu, thank you again. And people, go ahead. Great speaking with you today, Steve. Yeah. Thanks so much for uh, for the invitation uh, to be involved in your great project. And I'm glad you came on. And people, so check out Stu. Check out me at coopertalk.net. You can find over 700 episodes. Email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next week. Thank you, Stu.